Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 144. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I have a very special guest all the way from Scottsdale, Arizona. My guest today is the couples expert, Stuart Fensterheim, LCSW. Stuart, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, It's exciting because I don't know if your audience, I would assume your audience is aware that you were on my podcast uh, last week. Yeah, so we are all over the place. Between us, we're covering all the bases, the couples expert podcast and therapy chat. (laughs) Doing the worldwide help for couples, no matter where you are, we've got you covered. That's right. So, Stuart, will you just talk a little bit more about yourself and your practice so that anybody who didn't hear our interview on the Couples Expert podcast or anybody who just isn't familiar with your work knows more about what you do? What people who know me know that I love talking about myself. So (laughs) as a podcaster, I think that's part of what brings us to podcasting is both wanting to sort of take a center place in helping people understand who you are as an individual, as a podcaster, as a clinician, and also why you're so passionate about what you do. And that's something I know you do very well, is really giving to others. And my path to being a clinician is interesting. I started out as a teacher. Uh, I was a fifth grade teacher, as a matter of fact, on a uh, naval base. And it wasn't much fun. (laughs) I didn't really like it a whole lot because what I found and the thing that was most frustrating was I loved working with the kids. I loved working with people. But when parents didn't show, it just sort of everything just died. And you couldn't really do much from there because they didn't have the support. Mm. And one of the things that I then did is my mother was a... uh, vice principal of a middle school. So I turned to her and this goes back like 30 some years now and said, is this the kind of thing I'm going to have to deal with all the time? Because I'm trying to make this incredible decision. 
and processing it with her made the decision to leave that and then decided to go into a business uh, uh, field, try to figure out what I could do differently. So I actually ended up managing a McDonald's uh, Mm -hmm. in Florida and didn't like that very much either because, you know, you have to get be at work at 4 a.m. And that was tough. But when I began to reflect on what do I really love, it always was helping others, helping kids. The teenagers in McDonald's would be coming to me and talking to me about their issues, their problems, their family problems. So eventually I realized what I really wanted to do. I love the giving and teaching. I love the business end that going into social work. And the funny part is the reason I chose social work was I didn't have to do GREs because Mm -hmm. I knew that I wasn't a great student. I always gave it my all, but the structure tests were really sort of a lot of anxiety and things like that. But the Miller's analogy I could do. So I ultimately became a social worker, worked in some family agencies, and eventually I found my way to working with couples. And what I really love about the couples work and why I've chosen to dedicate my life to that is really because it's the foundation of the family, that when you work as a clinician with couples, not only are you impacting the two people who are sitting in your office, but you're impacting generation after generation after generation. And that led me to then opening my own practice. And here I am in Scottsdale. Awesome. And, and tell our audience what you do in your practice now in Scottsdale. Uh, what I do is I am an expert at helping couples really understand connections. And I think that is the area that the exciting news now is that it used to be in working with couples, people were really sort of, it was a very, a lot of guessing really went into it. We knew a little bit about human behavior. We helped people with that. We thought for the longest time that what we needed to do is teach people skills. We needed to teach them how to problem solve. We needed to teach them how to negotiate. But with the latest research that we now have, and that's really one of the reasons that I was excited to be able to come on here and talk about the science of love, the attachment model, the the childhood attachments and how they impact all of us is because what we now know is that if we can help two people sitting in our office really understand how important they are to each other and that they have each other's back, nothing will change a couple and how they deal with all these other things. If you have a clear sense of stability and know your partner's there for you, you can accomplish almost anything. And that's what I do in my office. It's, it's an experiential model. It's not a talk therapy model. It's a model that says together, me as the guide are going to help the couple really begin to have the right dialogue in their relationship so they understand what gets in the way of them feeling close to one another. Yeah. So what you brought up about connection and attachment, that's my passion too, as you know. And I'd love for you to talk more about just attachment in general, because I think many people have heard about it and don't know what it is. But even those of us who have learned about it in school or read about attachment, it can be pretty hard to understand. I think that 
it's like something you need to get in your bones. So if you could talk about attachment and attachment style, I would love that. Sure. I'd be more than happy to do that. And, and I think what I try to do when I, when I talk about this is to m- not make it too academic because mm-hmm. I think this is one of those areas because we, we're going to start out with science. And, and for me, that was the worst subject that I ever had is science. I think that was in high school, especially, I think that was my only D. And I think part of why I chose not to go into medicine was because I knew I couldn't make the science. But it really starts with a British psychiatrist by the name of John Bowlby. And who he, what he did, he had a theory that the relationships with your primary caretaker or the person that was raising you, that influenced everything. So what he did is he began to study thousands of kids all around the world. He went to England, he went to Africa, uh, United States and Canada. And what he did is he began to study and observe the caretaker, typically the mom, holding her infant, and that he began to notice that there were really three basic styles. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about. But to try to make it make sense to people, if you think about if any of your listeners ever had a child in the NICU, in the neonatal intensive care unit, one of the things that you always see there is you see volunteers. And you have volunteers who come into the neonatal intensive care unit And they're holding babies. And I don't know if everyone understands really why they do that. They do that to prevent something called failure to thrive. Failure to thrive is a life-threatening problem for newborns. And if you don't have touch, if you don't have a a feeling of tenderness and closeness, the infant basically withers their way and, and isn't able to handle that. What we have learned is that as adults, we have very similar needs in that. We don't outgrow this. So that if you don't experience a close attachment, a close importance, a security, a feeling of warmth, and a feeling of togetherness with at least one human being in your life who you know is there, emotionally, we can wither away and die. So, okay, so wait, let me stop you there. I'm sorry to interrupt, sure. but sure. you're saying we need connection for survival. That is correct. People, and we can define survival in many different ways. You know, you can think of it as, you know, is our heart going to stop beating? Are we going to be brain dead if we don't have this closeness? No, that's not true. That's not going to happen. But we'll emotionally die. Well, and, and failure to thrive is, is a, physical, a cause of right. death. Yeah, that is true. So, so maybe, you know, I sometimes hesitate to go too far with this because you don't want people to get turned off. So I think there's <laughs> part of me that doesn't want to go as far as what you're saying, but I absolutely agree with you. And if I would just talk spontaneously without worrying about that, <laughs> I would tell you that what I know is there have been periods in my life where I have not had a connection with someone I'm in a relationship with. And I guarantee you, I could have, if if that continued, I could have gone to such a degree of despair. uh, I think I could have gone there. Mm -hmm. 
And I think those that are have had relationships where you where what we know is there's nothing more painful mm-hmm. than being alone in a relationship. Right. And attachment can affect how we cope when we feel abandoned in a relationship or when we feel when the relationship ends, attach our attachment and the styles that you're going to talk about can influence whether the end of a relationship means to us, we feel like we're not going to survive. And then you're talking about it's not going to make your heart stop, but it could lead you to the kind of despair where you give up on living and, you know, it can, it could go to an extreme of death, but you hope that, you know, you catch it way before that point. But also different attachment styles can make it where when a relationship ends, you're like, oh, well, on to the next, you know, and you don't care at all. So I wanted to ask you to pause there. uh, See, I want to interrupt you a moment because you and I may have a different philosophy with this because uh, I'm not talking about when relationship ends. I'm talking about when you're in a relationship and it's not ending and that where you and I may differ somewhat, not completely, because I know you and I have talked about this before, is that any two people, what's exciting about this new science and the new research, any two people that want to have a relationship where you know you matter to that person can have that now. The only thing that stops it is giving up and stopping trying and and not following a path or a map. We now have a map to know that. Now, if someone is in a relationship and their partner is unwilling to meet their attachment needs, that the needs for love and togetherness are too different, those two people may not be able to make this work. But if we really get to a place where we're able to open up, be vulnerable, The research now is very clear. Those two people can develop a relationship that's quite special. And we now know how to take people. And these, the different types of childhood attachments, whether we're talking, the three you'll hear me talking about is one is secure, one is avoidant and ambivalent, uh, avoidant and ambivalent. Those are two sort of different things. Those three ways is a way, a framework to look at your partner and say, these are the issues, these are the expectations, these are the interpretations that my partner is going to make. And unless I really pay attention with that, I'm not going to know what the two of us need to do together to change the model. The reason I say that is if you and I you I've been it's almost like I'm on a soapbox these days because <laughs> I've been using Kelly Clarkston's song uh, and I'm blanking. Oh, my gosh. I'm blanking on the bit name of it. Bit by bit. Right. Bit by bit. Yeah. I think that's what it's called. Or piece by piece. Piece by like piece. That. No, yeah. it is piece by piece. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. And I actually use that in some of my counseling and in the workshops that I do. What that song is about if, you, if anyone saw her on American Idol, was probably the best place to really see that and see her and watch her and watch her facial expression. What the song is about is that by meeting this man, the one she's now married to and having a child with, 
her childhood abandonment issues, because her father abandoned her when she was quite young, has less significance now than any other time in her life for one and only one reason, because of the love of her partner. And that we can change our traumas from her past if our partnership is strong and secure, everything else goes away and is minimized, not goes away. I don't want to say pie in the sky here. The pains of our past become less important if your present is so good. Yeah. So, and I, I think I understand that you're not saying that, oh, I just get into the right relationship and it makes everything all better, but that it can heal the attachment injury. Yes. That is exactly what I'm saying. We're talking about healing. We're talking about people who have had all forms of traumas growing up. And when, when they feel insignificant or if they felt like they were just a, a tool for something and they finally meet someone who sees the real them and loves all of them, including their injuries, they no longer have to feel like they're broken. Yeah. Very, very, very powerful. I mean, I want to punctuate that because that's something that's an experience for so many people, feeling broken. Right. And that if there's one person, and that's what's so cool about this, it only takes one. We're not looking for 10. We're not looking for four. We're not looking for three. We're looking for one. And if that one person in your life takes that on and lets you know how much you matter, and the two of you are in this together, anything is possible. And that is what you and I do is help people understand that it's obtainable. And if we understand this, if we understand how our childhood background has had an impact. Now, what I'm not saying, and this is really clear, I'm not saying that your parents or your caretakers are at fault. I'm saying we want to look at this and say, what has impacted me without blame even and being aware of what our needs are so that we can now have a secure, close relationship with someone that the two of us are in this life together. Yeah. So will you... I know you started explaining this. Will you kind of go over the attachment styles again? And let's talk about how people feel in their adult relationships when they have their childhood background with these various attachment styles. Um, one, I think we could start with what do we all uh, hopefully have and that is a secure attachment with our child caretaker, our caretaker. Mm -hmm. And what a secure attachment is, is a parent that is responsive to us. A, for instance, if as a baby we're crying, the caretaker, the mom, I'm just going to call it mom, not to be gender specific, but I think it's easiest. Mom picks you up when you're crying and checks on how you're doing. You then begin to expect that your needs are going to be met. If you're hungry, you're fed. If you're cold, you have clothes. If you're hungry, there's food. And that this person, 
as a as a child with needing someone to do for us is responsive, engages with us, and we can and they're accessible. So this person just basically because of their love for you wants to do these things and not only do they want to do it, but they do it. So now we take that and the ideal situation, which that was, as an adult in a relationship has a partner where your assumption is if you need something, they're going to try to fulfill that need. So if you say coming home late from work stresses me out because I'm not sure what's going on for you and uh, I, I need you to really be uh, when I reach out to you, I need you to answer the phone. Your expectation and assumption is that person's going to do that because your youth, your life has been one in which that occurred. So as an adult, you're going to be someone who's going to ask for what you want and expect your partner to be willing to negotiate or do whatever we need to do to accomplish that because you know that they love you and therefore they would want to do that. So that is the ideal coming from a background in which you had a caretaker that did that. But as we all know, not everyone had that kind of background. So that is the one that we want. The next one that I like to talk about is the anxious attachment. And this is the mom who is a parent maybe a new parent or a parent been a parent for a while, but she's so anxious about something's going to go wrong. She's going to make a mistake. Uh, she, when child's sick, she may go bring the child to the doctor, which she would want to do, but she doesn't really want to do that because what she knows is the doctor's going to tell her that the child has this awful, awful illness that there's no cure for. So rather than deal with it, let's just not go. Mm. So when a child has a need, she's not sure if she's going to make the right call. So a child has a problem at school. This parent doesn't know if they can handle it because they're so overwhelmed themselves. So what happens here in an adult relationship, you don't know whether or not your needs will be met. They might be or they might not be. And you are so overwhelmed with not knowing if your partner can truly give you what you need that it's just such confusion. So you tend not to let someone know what you need because truthfully, the expectation is uh, your partner is not going to be able to handle it. So if I tell you that I'm lonely you just we're just going to argue and fight and not really understand that this is fixable because likely your partner is not going to know or be willing to do what it takes. So you just ask for things and no one ever is going to really be there. You know, what's interesting about this is I've asked couples and individuals when they have a partner or a, a parent who sometimes made met their need and then sometimes did not, and it was unpredictable, what their preference would be. Would they rather have them some of the time do it, or would they rather not have them do it? What's your guess that they say? Mm, I think they'd probably rather not have them do it, because then at least they know what to expect. Exactly. 
You're so right on the money. And if you think about it, how sad that is. It is. You would rather not have your needs met because at least I don't have to hope for. If I hope that's going to do it and then it doesn't do it, the pain and anguish of let down expectations or hopes are too devastating. And that's what comes from the anxious attachment. And so child's cranky, no one's doing anything about it. Insecure, doesn't know how to respond. And then the last one is the avoidant one. The avoiding attachment is mom is very cold and distant. Child learns needs will not be met. Not that they might be met, but they're not going to be met no matter what they do. And this is the adult that totally shuts out their partner, but they're shutting their partner out and shutting down and not even identifying a problem. And I, I think for more often than not, these are the more likely ones that tend to have multiple affairs because they're just sort of going on to the next, next port, basically because they're going to look to the next person to meet to since we got a, it's immediate gratification because you 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 know the partner is not going to be there for you and what happens with these is basically lots and lots of loneliness lots and lots of insecurity instability and the interpretation on both of these other folks is really about you will not be there for me in a deep way. And without that, I'm alone. So you're saying this person believes that their partner won't be there for them. So they shut them, their partner out. They almost like create that reality where the person can't get in the other partner, right? Right. They don't even try. They, at least it appears that they don't try. They, they, they sort of have this deep ache, but that what they don't know how to do is how to reach for your partner. How do you let someone know how important something is for you emotionally if you're not clear that they even can do it or want to do it? And sometimes not asking is easier. And that's what we basically begin to talk about. We start looking at the cycles that couples get into and that if you work together and begin to share these interpretations, share the internal dialogue, share the emotional expectation or lack of expectation and hear and be able to see your partner truly as the person who wants to be there for you and would do anything to be there in that way then we can begin to make some shifts. But if the person doesn't even realize this, there's no working together. So what we begin to do is break it down and go, okay, we have this trigger. Now, what do you think about when you're in the middle of this argument? When your partner is saying something that you don't like, what people generally do is have the worst interpretation possible. And that's reflective of your childhood background. And you need to begin to be able to identify where is that emotion coming from? It's not always from your partner. So to give an example, and to one I've used before is, and I've had 
some of, you know, we all have this. It's not saying that, you know, no, you're not going to go through this if your background was very secure, because we all do these interpretations. I was turning and changing, trying to change a light bulb in, my, in the kitchen, and I was having a rough time with it. And my wife said to me, if you turn it that way, it will help. I was furious. <laughs> How dare she do that to me? How dare she once again tell me what I'm doing not right? Because she loves telling me this. And it took me a minute. And what's, you know, as you begin to do these things, you begin to become very much more self-aware. And I go, oh, my gosh, that wasn't about her. That was some of my frustration growing up, the competition with my brothers. I have a brother who was very bright and always felt like everyone got more, he got more of the, 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 the positive affirmations than I did. That's where it was coming from. So then what I did is I turned to my wife and said, wait a minute, let me tell you what just happened to me. Now, if we didn't have a lot, done a lot of work together, it being vulnerable and open and accessible, I wouldn't have been able to do that. But telling her that repaired that situation in 10 seconds. Mm. Just that vulnerability and talking about, I know I have some stuff that sometimes comes up from my past. And again, it's not only about your mother or father or caretaker. If you were a kid that had issues with other kids in school, that could be a trigger. If you didn't feel, feel like you ever fit in, that's mm -hmm. a trigger. I mean, these triggers in our past and that where the childhood attachment comes from is how we address these things is a byproduct of those things. Is that clear? Yeah. And then I wonder, since I'm not a couples therapist and you are, are couples able to overcome and repair their relationships when they have, because I think, you know, when we, when you're in a relationship, so much that happens and so many of the problems and conflicts and hurt feelings, you don't really understand why you feel that way. And sometimes it feels like it's snowballed so much that it's just like, I don't know how we got to this point and I don't even know if I still want to keep trying. So how do, how do you work with couples to repair their relationships when their attachment is really what's influencing the way they feel about each other? Well, I think our attachment influences everything. So it's not just that isolated thing. So you're correct. When you have an attachment issue or a connection issue, I like to call it more connections and attachments, although we need to talk about attachment, but it's really, I don't feel that closeness. I don't feel the connection. It doesn't feel like we're a we. It feels like two strangers living together. We're like roommates. You know, we're always walking on eggshells, all those things. That is all about a negative interactional cycle that gets created for couples where how we interpret our partners, whether you're reachable, do I, the, what we know is people, uh, there's certain questions that we all ask ourselves. One is, are you there for me? Do I matter? Will you do whatever it takes to really have me feel loved, all those things. And what happens for most couples 
is they don't talk about those things. They talk about the money fight. They talk about how could you have done this to me? Why were you disrespectful? And what they never get to is it's about a strong need for connection. When your partner is yelling at you and even possibly calling you this awful name, when we begin to dig deep, it's a primal panic because you feel alone. You don't feel like your partner cares. And if you begin to talk about the real messages and your partner not only hears the words, but sees the emotion, sees the experience, and it typically happens in the office with me, where people begin to have brand new experiences with their partner. And what typically comes up is people begin to say things like, I didn't know that about you. You mean you feel that way too? Mm. And then it begins to be a teamwork approach against the true enemy, which is your cycle. And if the two of you work together to change the nature of the relationship, because you're working for the same purposes, which is a purpose of feeling important and feeling like your partner sees you as the best thing that ever happened to them, and that they see all of you, and they love even the parts you don't love about yourself, they say, those are some of the same things I love about you. Mm. you how you view the two of you is incredible. And the thing that I think people do a bad job with is they don't understand conflict and that it isn't about conflict. Conflict, how much you argue or fight is never a problem. The only problem is, can you repair? If you don't know how to repair, then conflict matters. Because what we find is as you begin to have these experiences where you look at your partner and you go, I know this person is someone that very deeply loves me. And I now experience you as really needing me, not wanting me, needing me. I now have a whole different relationship. And that's what we do in the office is we, and, and what frustrates a lot of people is that they think that they don't understand why can we do it in the office, but not at home. And it change will happen initially in the office has to happen lots and lots of times where you have these new experiences where you begin to begin to question things that you call facts that are really assumptions. So that when you go, I know you're someone that if I'm going to bring this up, you're going to just yell at me. And now you have an experience in my office where they don't, but they're sensitive and giving and wanting to hear it. So now you begin to go, ooh, maybe what I thought was true isn't so true. And now I can begin to give and not pull away so much. I'll put my tippy toes in a little bit, and then maybe I'll put my foot in. And then maybe I'll even really be there and expect you to say loving, caring things. So the tone goes down and the need for those types of interactions stop. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. And that's what I do. And what the research has shown, people who are seeing couples counselors who are working on an attachment-based model, the success rate compared to other types of 
couples counseling is astronomically higher. We're seeing success rates of anywhere from 70 to 85%. Success being measured as? Measured as feeling like the relationship is more loving and caring and that we're in this world together and I know I'm important to my partner. Even people who drop out, but the research and, and the, the model that I use is something called emotionally focused therapy and they could get a lot of information of that on my website, which is www.thecouplesexpertscottstill.com. And if you go to that page on the website, there's a link there that'll take you to a international organization of emotionally focused therapy where all the validated research, it's a researched model. They actually have done clinical studies and research, and that's what they're finding that people who drop out are also reporting positive change and that their relationship has never been better. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's why I get so passionate about all of this because, you know, in the old days, it was sort of like, I'll cross my fingers and cross my toes and hope everything is going to be okay. And we were seeing people coming back over and over and over again while it was good for the pocketbook. It sure wasn't that good for the couple. Right. And now I can really sit there in my office and say to a couple, I know, we know how to get you there. And it's not a guessing game. There's a clear map. That's wonderful. And I've heard great things about emotionally focused therapy, EFT from you and others. I think that it's definitely the couple's model that I recommend now the most because You know, when people are thinking about couples counseling, I encourage them to go find an EFT therapist because, you know, attachment is really, to me, it's what it's all about. And if they go to the, and I I always get this confused whether it's COM or ORG, I believe it's COM, ICEFT, which is the International Organizations for Emotionally Focused Therapy, and I'll give this uh, to you so that you can put it on your show notes, mm-hmm. the, the accurate, but I believe it's ICEEFT.com. They can only, they could read for, for your, the men out there who want to read the research, because most men like to do that. It, the, it's, you can get links for the actual research and take a look at it. And also for those of you who are, because I know both Laura and I, you, we both have an, uh, a people who, who listen to our podcast all over the world, which is so exciting for you, Laura, too. <laughs> for um, both of us. For both of us, is that you can get people who, uh, there's a, a referral list for people all over the country in many different countries to find people who have the knowledge and experience to help couples with using that model. Awesome, yeah. So wherever people are, if they're looking for couples counseling, they can find that information there and it'll be in the show notes. I know you'll give it to me and I'll put that in Mm -hmm. there. And also for people in Scottsdale, Arizona, the couples expert, scottsdale.com is Stuart's practice. The other thing I want to just let people know if they're interested is I also do because my license only allows me to practice within the state of Arizona. Mm Mm-hmm. But I offer these weekend programs, too, and a number of people have flown in for those. And Scottsdale is, uh, is, you know, right about now, we're becoming the place for a lot of people to want to come 
of September, October, we're in the 80s. Um, and then it gets even better after that. But I uh, about once a month offer a weekend workshop for people, which is a two days of working through some of the looking at the cycles in the relationship and really getting some very specific tools of, of how to change the relationship using this approach. Awesome. So the weekend events are workshops uh, for couples? Yes. They're couples that come together. It's 16 hours. It's all day Saturday. It's, it's 12 to 16 hours, I guess, the way I'm doing it now. But all day Saturday and most of the day Sunday, they'll get a, uh, uh, the book, which is called Hold Me Tight. As, as a gift for me for attending and that what we do in this is a private retreat, meaning that I do education in the public forum, but then every couple goes off and, and you never have to talk about your relationship publicly. And then couples go off and with the teachings that I've done, they actually take those skills and apply it to their own relationship privately. And I come around and, and me and some, I have a, couple of people who generally help me do that, who are other clinicians, to help people within their own private setting uh, work through the issues. Awesome. Stuart, I also want people to know about your podcast. Where can they listen to it? Uh, you can get to my podcast in two different places. Obviously, iTunes has it. If you go to my website, I have a podcast page. I do a podcast every week, and I bring on experts in the field of couples and relationships. And then periodically I do a solo one of just me uh, offering. I also have, I do a daily video, three minutes with Stuart on YouTube that people can get to and watch daily tips that I give for relationships on my YouTube channel, the Couples Expert YouTube channel. But you can find, I have everything really on my website because I want to make it easy for people to find me. Okay. And your website again is the couples expert, scottsdale.com, right? Correct. Awesome. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for being on therapy chat. I loved our conversation and I think a lot of people are right now sitting here going, wow, whoa. <laughs> so I really appreciate That's neat. You. And I want to thank you because I know you and I have been sort of piggybacking on each other for quite some time now. And, and your podcast is one that I have heard such good things about from people who listen to podcasts. And I think you offer a service that's so special that I want to encourage all of my listeners and anyone new who's listening for the first time to really follow Laura on Therapy Chat. It's a, it's a really worthwhile place. I appreciate that so much. And I feel the same about your couples expert podcast. So I think, uh, you know, there's lots of great stuff out there and sometimes it's hard to find podcasts that really, there's so many and you don't know what they're always about and how to search for them. So it's nice to hear like things that connect with what our interests are and go listen to them. Listen, <laughs> take care. All right. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Stuart Fensterheim, LCSW, of the Couples Expert podcast. I thought the conversation was really interesting, and there was a lot of information there about how we show up in our adult relationships 
whether romantic or interpersonal relationships, and our relationships with our children. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.